we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. Hi, I'm Liz Guinness and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Welcome back to our conversation with Michael Smith. This is part two. For those of you who missed part one, we talked to Michael about his adventurous childhood and how and why he embarked on his journey to fly the old Rose Bay to London route in his tiny flying boat. The journey took him three months and on arrival, he decided to carry on and circle the earth. At the end of part one, he shared with us how he'd arrived in Greenland, heading for North America. So if we go back to crossing the Atlantic, Mm. you're approaching Canada and I know, I know, and I know you don't particularly like to discuss it, um, but can we, can we go there? Yeah, we need to. We do need to. Look... I, you know, I said things had got hard across the Atlantic and that really came home to roost at the end of it. I'd been, I'd left Greenland, I was flying for Canada and I'd been flying for about eight hours. So, you know, getting reasonably tired, but I'd done other eight hour flights. It Mm. wasn't like I was really pushing it. And it had been a beautiful day. I mean, just delightful. I could actually see the contrails above me of planes flying across the North Atlantic at, you know, 38,000 feet. Uh, so, you know, I didn't feel ridiculously lonely, but it is a bizarre feeling being out over the ocean so far from anything. I, I mean, can it's, well imagine. It, it is a very isolating feeling. So about half an hour out from the Canadian coast, all I could see was a wall of cloud. And, you know, the problem when you... So if you're flying around Australia, for instance, you, you get a weather report. You get a weather report for where you're planning to land and they have very good weather reporting and, and you kind of get what the weather's likely to be and you have alternates and... You know, if the weather's bad ahead of you, you can usually go here or go here mm. or, to worst case, turn around and go back. But when you're eight hours over the Atlantic, you There's don't no have enough back. fuel to go just go back. So mm. you have to find an option. And so I was, look, you know, really studying the cloud. And as we got closer, I thought, okay, it looks like this cloud above me and cloud beneath me. I can either go right up above the cloud, um, but I was worried that as I got closer to the airport, maybe I wouldn't be able to get back down through it. Mm-hmm. And But I could see... You know, I thought, okay, but I, it looks like I can go between the cloud. The cl- you know, the cloud been, was basically fog on the ground. And so I think I was at about... Sorry. You're right. I think I was at about 4,500 feet crossing the Atlantic, but then I dropped down to uh, about 2,500 feet to go between the cloud. And I thought I could see through. And the airport I was going to is called Goose Bay, but it was 100 miles inland. Right. So it wasn't like I just had to get to the coast and land. I had to get... Uh, about an hour, that's about an hour and 20 minutes in my plane. So I thought this is the better thing to do. Um, you know, I thought probably the fog will clear a bit further inland and it'll be okay. Mm. So as I was flying in, um, the cloud was getting closer and closer together and I just got to a point where I thought, okay, I don't like this. I'm, I'm going to go back to the coast and work out a, an, another plan. So I, I put the plane into a turn and I was so focused on looking forward 
that I, what I hadn't noticed was the cloud had already come together next to me. And as I turned, I literally turned straight into oh. the cloud. And even though I've had basic training on how to deal with cloud because I've only had it at a basic level uh, and I've always been warned, whatever you do, don't fly in cloud. As soon as I got into the cloud, I panicked. And I, and I, and I just... And, I, and basically I lost control of the plane and the plane went into um, a dive, a, like a, a spiralling dive towards the ground. And um, as, because I was diving, the plane was going faster and faster and planes have a red line where there's a speed you're not allowed to go over and I was well into the red line and that's kind of the point where you know, you, the plane can start breaking apart. And I was moving my hands and my feet and I was trying to, and I was just thinking, you know, why isn't this working, why isn't this working? And I... But I just wasn't processing things properly. You know, I had instruments in front of me that if I just looked at them and concentrated, I could have fixed it. But I didn't. I panicked. And I was completely whited out. And um, and I was going down quickly. Do, do, you, do you feel it? Do you feel that, like, given it's just all white around you, you can't, it's you have no sense of... Up or down thing. or sideways. Yeah. It's the most claustrophobic feeling. And because, look, people often don't understand why is it that, being in it why why is it you can't just fly level but um you know and i say to those people next time you're driving down the highway at night turn your lights off for three seconds and see how comfortable that is then imagine that you can go up and down as well and you know when you're on a swing you know that sensation as you go through the bottom of a swing in, in your stomach or if you're in the plane and there's turbulence i mean these are not normal sensations so if you put yourself in a plane that you're trying to fly and you don't have an autopilot and you get disorientated. You don't know what you, no. you lose your reference point. So the plane was spiraling, and I, I mean, the awful thing is, I got to the point where I just thought, "That's it. I don't, I don't know what to do. I can't fix it, and I can't believe I'm going to die here oh in the middle God. of nowhere." And my poor family, you know, I shouldn't have pushed this. I shouldn't have. I should have just stopped in London. The plane wasn't built for this, and you know, people warned me, and I didn't listen to them, and and here I am. I'm about. To, I, mean, I can't believe I'm about to die, oh. and. You know, you just think, my poor family. And then just at that point, I'm sorry. No. And just at that point, uh, you know, the the dot of the sun appeared, like through the cloud, this tiny, tiny dot, like a just this tiny little beacon of light on the horizon. And I just I couldn't believe that I could see it. And automatically my, you know, my reflexes just responded and my hands and feet instinctively moved and the plane leveled out. And I flew towards that dot and because it was so far north, the sun was really low on the horizon. And I just followed that dot of the sun and like literally 30 seconds later, I came out of the cloud. I was four or 500 feet above the ground, which I've since worked out meant I had about 11 seconds left if I hadn't oh, seen that. God. And I just, um, you know, I'm not going to say it was God. I'm not going to say what it was, but it is, it is there is something looking after me that day. And it, uh, and look, I have to say it was July the 19th and it's a turning point in my life because, you know, f I, I, I shouldn't have walked away from that. And it's why, you know, since I've come home, I've just decided I'm going to doubly apply myself to what I do and I'm going to make the most of every minute I have left and really, you know, look after my family because I'm really lucky to be here. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, sorry. You see what I don't like talking about. No, and I'm sorry that I had to pull it out of you no but, but i know it's important and um you know the bizarre thing is i you know i came out of that and uh so i you know i had to keep going it's not like you can just go well i'll just land here shall <laughs> i you have to keep going and 
So I thought, okay, I'll fly back to the coast. Uh, I know there's a longer option. I had plenty of fuel. I always carried like three hours spare fuel. So it gave me planning options. And I thought, okay, what I'll do is I'll follow the coast. There's a river that goes into this bay. It's nearly an hour south. So it'll add a lot of time to the flight. But I'll fly all the way down to that river. And even if I have to fly it, 10 feet above the water I'll follow the river up mm. until you know to get through and being in a seaplane flying low over the water is not a scary thing like it's what we do so yeah. I thought okay that's my get out of jail so I followed it down and, and I was able to fly at about 300 feet and follow the water all the way up to the airport and when I got there it was clear blue sky so but then you know then you have to land then you have to go into the airport you have to communicate on the radio do all of the things um, and you know, unfortunately, one of the lessons I've learned was, you know, when I was uh, when I was out over the ocean and that airport was 100 miles away, I didn't have radio range. Right. So I couldn't contact them to say, what's the cloud like? Because if I'd just simply been able to find out what's the weather at the airport and they'd said clear blue sky, then I would have stayed above that cloud and just flown all the way in and had not yeah, had any right. of those issues. But the decision-making you make without information, I mean, like mariners had 200s of years ago, you know, can lead to disaster. So... You know, one of the things I did do later was I, you know, I got a satellite device for the plane so um, I could then get weather in the plane. So, you know, I went and added to my resources to help that planning. But anyway, then I had to land and I had to clear customs and you just have to just then, you know, so you've gone through this awful ordeal. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and after it had happened, my chest was beating, like the adrenaline going through my body was phenomenal and I wasn't conscious of it until I flew out of the cloud and I felt like my chest... You know, like my heart was literally trying to leap out of my ribcage. It was incredible. The, the sensation was amazing. But it was beating so hard that I convinced myself I must be having a heart attack. And, uh. and I, I'll never forget this sense that I'm sitting in the plane, shaking my left arm, which I'm now doing for years <laughs> at home, uh, shaking my left arm thinking, no, no, I've read somewhere that if you're having a heart attack, your left arm hurts. My left arm doesn't hurt. It's not a heart attack. Okay, calm down. And... Um, you know, and then I got to the, and as I was flying down along the beach, I just burst into tears, oh, and I, I was just like an inconsolable child. Of course. And then an hour later, you find, or well, an hour and a half later, you landed in an airport, and you've got to deal with customs and immigration, go through this process. And so I did that. I so desperately wanted to talk to someone about it, mm. and I just didn't know what to say. So I just processed the paperwork. I asked the people at the airport where there was a, a hotel, and they they took me down and dropped me at the hotel. And I just sat in my room and I just didn't know what to do. So I I went for a walk around this very humble, basic town and, uh, you know, went and had dinner in the restaurant by myself. And I so wanted to ring Anne, but I just couldn't. I just thought, how do you ring your wife? And, and so I, I, ne- I, I nearly killed myself today, Anne, and tomorrow I'm going to go flying again. going to go do it again. So I, I bottled it up. I internalised it and it was, you know, I read about PTSD and all these other things and... Uh, you know, to be honest, I never have really sat down and talked to anyone about it. But, you know, maybe that's part of writing the book and is, you know, just emotionally dealing with how, what did you do? So, you know, I, I decided not to fly the next morning. I just thought I need to sleep in and not be in a rush. Mm. And I went out, I decided I'd do some routine maintenance on the plane a little bit earlier than it was needed, but it was just something to do. Yep. And then I decided that I'd go on to the next city I was planning, which was already going to be a short flight of only a few hours four hours which I you know it's amazing I now think of four hours as a short <laughs> flight but 
So I did that and, uh, I, you know, and I flew that next day and then when I left and I stayed there for two nights and I had a fantastic look around this town, um, where, which is where the flying boats used to land. Um, and uh, then the next day I flew down to Maine and again, there was lots of cloud and so, you know, I took off and again, coming into Maine, I had to deal with the cloud thing again. But even in within two days, I just, you know, really told myself I had to be calm. I had to just, you know, you've actually had training for this process and... You know, but I was so paranoid about. I would the imagine cloud. It'd be an incredible mental battle going I, I just, on and emotional. I couldn't go through it again. But no. now I found myself, you know, looking and so looking for holes in the cloud to come back down and land at this airport. It was really tough, and uh, you know, the next day, um, I didn't. I only stayed in Maine the one night. I just wanted to keep moving, and uh, I flew into New York, and you know, that just changed everything. I I flew into New York, and I landed on the Hudson River. No, and I just thought. You know, I, I flew the length of the Hudson River and I was, you know, you're allowed to do it. It's incredible. You're 500 feet. You can, a small plane's allowed to fly along the Hudson River and look at Manhattan. And over Lady Liberty, I would imagine. Yeah, and yeah. so I circled um, the Statue of Liberty. I you know, flew next to uh, where the World Tower used to be, now Freedom Tower. Yeah. And uh, I thought, well, what do you do when you're in New York? You're in a seaplane? land on the Hudson. As so you do. I made a radio call to say I was going to land on the Hudson and I was expecting people to panic, kind of looking forward to that and explaining, but no one cared. No. So <laughs> I, because uh, you, you, you explain that you're in an you know, amphibious aircraft, November 473 X-ray Papa. You know. So it can land uh, yeah. as opposed uh, to the planes that can't, yeah. but do. Overflying uh, Intrepid, descending for a water landing and everyone was like, yeah, whatever, good on you. But uh, <laughs> that felt pretty momentous. And so I, I did that and then I went back to an airport locked up the plane and I think I was really lucky that there was a cyclone you know what they call them hurricanes in the Carolinas and I couldn't fly south so I actually got stuck in New York for three days and it was probably exactly what I needed Mm. was to stop and take check but you know it was uh probably the loneliest I was on the trip was in New York because I was mentally dealing with what I'd just been through but I had no one to talk to in a city of millions of people yes and Incredibly so, and I and I remember uh, I'd been to New York before, so I didn't have this dying need to you know go up the um, the, the towers and do all of the various things. But I always loved Battery Park, uh, so um, and actually I've never been out to the statue, so I thought I'll go out to the statue. But I went down to Battery Park and it was closed for renovations, so I couldn't go. And so with a day up my sleeve, I just decided that I'd walk as far back to Westchester where I was staying, and uh, so I walked all the way to Harlem. I mean, that is a, a monster, monster walk. Was it 80, 90 blocks? Wow. Something like that. So, um, I, I, yeah, went to a couple of bookshops that were unique to uh, to New York. And But, yeah, just, just walking along and processing that, it was... it was. But, you know, you just realise, well, look, you've made a mistake. You have to learn from your mistakes. You don't give up just because you've had, you know, you've had a really bad stumble. Did you, did you think at, any, at that point, though, no, that's it, I'm done, I, I don't want to do it again? Well, that no. night in... Goose Bay, yeah. I was absolutely processing that. I yeah. was thinking, okay, well, you know, this, how do I get a shipping, you know, if I can get a, con- I can put the plane in a container and send it home. And, you know, and you actually started looking at it going, oh, well, it's not that bad. You, you get the truck to take the container from here down to the port and, you know, in the port it'll blah, blah, blah. And you yeah. just start processing, well, that's, maybe that's what I need to do. But you realise if you do do that, I mean, it's not just giving up. But you never do it again. No, and you might never get in the plane again. And, honest. you know, what? I mean, you know, we, we all make mistakes and we do live in a society that damns people for their mistakes. Uh, and I think we need to embrace those mistakes. You know, know, guys like Branson talk about, you know, if you, if you haven't failed, you haven't tried hard enough. 
And I think we, we do need to embrace those failures. We don't want to aim to fail, of course, but we need to accept that pushing boundaries means that mistakes will happen and things will go wrong, but it's how you deal with it. Yeah, that's where growth comes from. Yeah, and I, so I, you know, after a few days, I actually, when I landed, interestingly, there was this massive air show on called Oshkosh and a lot of people wanted me to come to Oshkosh and, and I, but I just didn't feel like being lauded as this, you know, amazing hero of the skies was what I deserved after nearly doing that. So instead I quietly went down to Florida and I sat down and I spoke to the guy who had built my plane for me mm -hmm. and I told him what had happened because I said, we need to really thoroughly check this plane because I took it well into the red line. And uh, But anyway, the plane was fine. Um, but, you know, it was interesting when I spoke to him and he said, oh, look, we've all had that, you know, maybe not as bad as that, but we've all had that incident where we've been scared by clouds and you just, you know, and, you'll, and it'll happen again. Just, just do your, you know, just process it as well as you can. So... Uh, yeah, then we did some, you know, a few weeks of maintenance on the plane, which gave me a chance to kind of get back into the swing of things. And, and I must say, by the end of that month, um, I was really ready to get going again. We'll be back with our conversation with Michael after this. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia. Okay, so get going and how did that look? Well, that's when I did... So from there, that's when I did the Mississippi that I talked about. Mm -hmm. And I must say the timing of that... Miss, the way I did the Mississippi, I think, is what really got me back on the horse. It was by taking it slowly and getting back to what the root fun of flying was. Because a lot of the flying I'd done, you know, this is a plane built for fun, for landing mm. on the water, for splashing. and um, But, you know, most of the flying I'd done to get to America was landing at big international airports. Uh, you know, I'd only been able to land on the water about a dozen times, but, you know, 50 airports. So... Um, to get back on landing on the water and sleeping in the plane. And, you know, and it took me back to being a kid again. It took yeah. me back to the Gippsland Lakes of being in my dinghy and just I felt like a teenager. And I must say when I got to the source, you know, it's, which is a little spring-fed lake up in Minnesota, and I landed on that lake and it was literally noon. So I shut down the engine, <laughs> got out of muesli bar and just sat there and uh, I think I had coffee in the thermos and I just sat there and thought, wow, this is pretty good. Yeah, life's great. Yeah. Yeah, I've made it, so you can do it. And uh, then decided I've, I've just got to do it. I've got to get across the, the Pacific. So I decided there and then that that had to happen. So then you hopped up to Alaska and Yes, yeah, so I went through um, Seattle, spent a couple of days in Seattle getting ready. That was great and uh, spoke to... It was really good, actually, Seattle, because I was still a bit unsure about the whole thing. I couldn't fly to Hawaii. I knew the only way... Too far, yeah. Too far. Yeah. So I went into Seattle and I spoke to some guys who'd been... Uh, seaplane pilots who operated out in the Aleutian Islands. And this is where the trip went from retracing kind of 1930s flying boat airmail routes, which is very specific, <laughs> uh, to it being a real adventure flight. I mean, this is kind of where Walter Mitty went, you know, out to the last island in the yeah. Aleutians. And this is a special, special part of the world. It is so underpopulated. It is rugged. The islands don't have trees on them. Uh, but, they, you know, they have this kind of green, uh, mossy growth and it's an incredible part of the world. 
Uh, so uh, yeah, I went up to Alaska um, and did a few days, again, a bit more preparation, got some of the, uh, topped up my supplies, just took a bit of check of things and then kind of went for it. Lots more weather. I started getting delayed for weather a lot now because it was October. It was getting very late in the season to be in this yeah, part of the world. Definitely. So I'd, because it had taken longer to do the maintenance on the plane than I expected, we were a little bit behind. But but the guys I spoke to in Seattle really helped me. Uh, you know, they said, look, uh, you know, we used to fly out there all year round. All these people will tell you it's not safe to fly in Alaska in winter. That's rubbish. You just got to be patient. They said, if you accept that you might have to sit for somewhere for a few days until the weather comes. When the weather comes, it'll be glorious, but it'll be a narrow window and just be ready for it. And I'm so glad I had that talk with them um, because it's exactly what happened. You know, I left um, after a few days in Anchorage, I left. I didn't even make it to my first stop. I had to turn back um, into a place called Homer. You know, where else do you go on an odyssey? Yeah, that's so, right. So, uh, and I had to spend a couple of days there. And then I got to a place called Coal Bay, uh, which is, you know, got the highest rainfall in the United States. And it rained for three days. So eventually I got out of there. And then, you know, so it was kind of just step by step. But eventually I got to this place called Adak. And it's the last inhabited island in the Aleutian Islands. Incredible, incredible place. I mean, a bizarre strength of beauty. It. Uh, very striking, about 100 people living there, 20 of them are kids. So there's a school, wow. there's a few school teachers, there's a post office. Uh, but there's uh, fundamentally subsistence fishermen uh, and people and, and crabbers. They're catching crabs and sending them back to the mainland. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I got stuck there for three weeks waiting for permission to land in Russia. Yeah. But the permission, to cut a long story short, the permission never came through. And I actually had pretty much resolved after a week of being there that I was going to have to pack up and go home. I was actually getting quotes on a container out of Anchorage to send it back. Is that because it just was too far? It to was get too to, far. You yeah. have to go to Japan? Yeah. If I was going to have to fly straight to Japan, I just couldn't make it. It was going to, I could put 21 hours worth of fuel in the plane, but it was going to be about a 22, 23 hour flight. And uh, so what can you do? And I started studying Google Earth and I found an island that was partway... Uh, between where I was and Japan, it was uninhabited. But what I could see on Google Earth is it had an old World War II runway on it, which had actually been extended in the uh, in the Cold War, yeah. so that it could take a B fifty two. So it was ten thousand feet long, or three kilometres long, a massive runway. So I worked out that if I could just get some fuel on that island, um, it was five hours from where I was, and that if I could get to there, then it would be a five hour flight followed by a nineteen hour flight, which I could okay, just do. Doable. So. Having given up on Russian permission, I loaded up the plane with um, 13 hours of fuel and then I put um, six hours of fuel in containers on the seat and I took off and I flew five hours out to this island. I waited for a nice day and you had to wait because uh, they only came every few days. But a glorious day. I flew out there and uh, left six containers of fuel next to the runway, got back in the plane and flew back. back. And then I had to wait another week for the weather to get better again. You're less than impatience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, people at home were horrified. It's like, um, how long are you going to stay on this island? It's like, well, you know, it's, you know, I was just walking every day. I got, I got a bit fitter than usual. Um, Met some lovely people. Yeah, great people. Um, great, you know, every place in the world has amazing stories. And, you know, the isolation of these people was quite incredible. So, uh, and, 
yeah, lots of exploring, lots of underground bunkers and old war buildings and things too. So it was an old Navy base in the right. Cold War. It used to have 3,500 people stationed there. Oh, my goodness. And now there are 100 people. So there's all of the buildings are still there. So it's like being on a ghost town where the odd kind of cul-de-sac has a family living in it. It was just bizarre. I bet they were very happy to see you. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it was, yeah, yeah, it was <laughs> lots really, of new conversations yeah, lots, to be had. Yeah, I had dinner at lots of houses. <laughs> anyway, eventually the right day came around. I was waiting for a day where there'd be a tailwind. So I took off. I landed on this island. I topped up the fuel. I had, in fact, I worked out I had 22 hours of fuel in the plane. And I thought, right, I'm ready to go. And uh, I'd timed it so that I landed on the island just before dark because I wanted to refuel and take off with the sun up, fly all night and arrive in Japan with the sun up because, you know, it's better not to arrive somewhere when it's dark if, you don't, if mm. you're not familiar with it. So I got on the satellite phone to get my takeoff clearance from the Japanese authorities and was told, look, you, you can't take off. Um, there's going to be fog predicted in the morning, so we need you to delay your departure by three hours. I was like, but that means it'll be dark. And they said, well, you can't take off. We're not giving you clearance. We're giving you clearance for three hours from now. So I processed that and I just thought, oh, my God, what do I do now? So I, uh, anyway, the short version of the story is I waited the three hours. In that time, it started raining. The wind started howling in, but it was from the direction I wanted. It was going to have a bigger tailwind than I expected. So I took off in the dark, in the rain, um, and and I couldn't see the runway. So I... But, but but luckily I had some I had this idea that I hoped would work and as I put an LED torch in the middle of the runway shining back at me and another one at the end and uh, I thought as long as I take off before the first light I'm okay but if I haven't taken off by the time I get to the first torch I'll apply the brakes and stop and think about what to do next I mean I did have the option of course of waiting till the next day but I knew what weather was coming I'd studied the weather patterns up here so thoroughly that I knew that I was going to have this northerly wind for about five hours and then it was going to be a howling westerly and the, and everyone said once the westerlies kind of kick in for the season, they're there and that's it. And it turned out that's what happened. The, the weather shut that day. So, so you really so I to knew go. that I, that was it or the trip was over. So anyway, um, there was rain on the windscreen. I couldn't see out. I opened the window. I stuck my head out so I could see forwards and I so I took off on an abandoned island, on a runway with no lights, with my head out the window, but managed to get off and very slowly climbed up to 1,500 feet and then flew for 14 hours in the dark. It was the most bizarre night of my life. (laughs) And then when I got to Japan, the fog was still there. The tailwind had been stronger than I had expected and um, I couldn't land. So they, uh, they were fantastic. They found a domestic airport in the north of Hokkaido where there wasn't any fog. And so, you know, at this stage I've been up for 36, 38 hours. I've been flying for 25 hours all up and I have to fly to another airport. So I fly to that airport, I land and um, I couldn't leave because it was a domestic airport. So I just fell asleep. They came and woke me up two hours later and said, the fog has lifted. <laughs> and, and, and again, generosity of strangers the fog has lifted and here is a wheel of Hokkaido cheese and Hokkaido sausage. These are products of our town that we are very proud of. <laughs> and you just think, I love everyone in the world. I love people. And so, look, from there, it was it was a pretty easy trip home, to be honest. So that, from there, down through the Philippines, uh, back into Australia, um, cleared in through 
Horn Island and uh, went to Longreach, uh, we, where I'd gone on the way out. So that officially became the end of the circumnavigation. Yeah, that, that was the home of Qantas, Qantas wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And then I popped down back down to Melbourne and, <coughs> you know, it was lovely. My wife had organised this little gathering. There was about 30 people, just family and friends. Again, no media. And uh, we, uh, yeah, just landed, pulled up at the Yacht Club back up the boat ramp and went in and was handed a glass of champagne and it kind of felt pretty bizarre to be home. I bet it did. And then one day I went back to work. And so that was seven <laughs> months after you started? Yeah, so it turned out to be seven months, 25 countries, 80 cities and 70 cinemas. It sounds like a very nonchalant way to wrap up what was an incredible trip. Um, and from after it, you were then um, awarded the Australian Geographic Adventure of the Year in 2016. That was a lovely surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I look, I'm forever indebted to Australian Geographic because that uh, I don't know, you know who nominated me. I don't know how that, how that whole process works, but it was completely out of the blue when I was told. And, you know, it's off the back of that that the book got published and the film got made. You know, the film would have just been a simple little DVD and instead it got a cinema release. So, you know, the story became known to people and I'm really proud to have been able to share the story because you know i've reflected on my life a lot but you know i hear how other people have connected with it as well and you know it makes you want to just give back a bit and i think uh one of the things that really is driven home is just the the size or the lack thereof of your plane how small it really was Uh, i don't think people quite understand it well look i think when if uh when people look at a smart car and they look inside and they think that is such a small car i wouldn't want to drive that my cockpit's smaller like, imagine sitting in there for 18 hours. Yeah. Um, so I actually wanted to move on now to another one of your passions, uh, which is cinema. Mm. And you, I believe you run a program called Screens Without Borders, which I'm really eager to talk about. Yeah, look, we do. Uh, this started actually by chance about 10 years ago. I was asked to go up to East Timor to look at building a cinema there, uh, and which is something I still do. I do consulting on helping people because, I, I mean, I just love community cinema. So I... Um, you know, we've just recently helped someone open a cinema in Launceston and we did one a couple of years ago in Bright. And so I'm constantly, you know, helping people do that. It's something I love doing. So we went to Timor and, and to be honest, it kind of didn't feel like they were ready for a big commercial cinema. But I said, you know, there's always a need for film. So uh, I've been doing outdoor movies all my life. I mean, I love it. I did it at uni. I've done it. Uh, so I said, why don't we send our outdoor cinema equipment up and we'll do some movies and see how that goes. Well, they loved it. I mean... And that really inspired me. And it was so cool. Uh, and there was kind of no funding for it. And, you know, I spoke, you know, we'd speak to people in government or whatever, and they'd be like, yeah, look, it sounds great. But, you know, we're kind of working on electricity and infant yeah, health. And, and, yeah. and so, you know, and I got it. I was like, okay, so we, we said there and then we'll never ask the government for a dollar, but we'll just make it a project of the Sun Theatre in Melbourne. And so we have fundraising events and, you know, just some of our profits go to doing this. So we employ, the first month went so well, you know, we'd have 2,000 people turning up for a screening. And this we, is we, outdoor cinema. Outdoor cinema. Yeah. And it's, you know, free movies. And we, we took up a library of different films and just to see what people kind of connected with. And I met with Kirsty uh, Sword, Gus Moe, the, you know, who was first lady of East Timor at the time. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, she said it'd be great if you could play the films in Tetan, the nat- native language. Yeah. And so we actually decided there and then what we do is, okay, well, firstly we'll... Um, We'll train locals to operate it. So we employed four people there full-time now. They work all year round, even though the the program only runs for seven months of the year because it's in the dry season. Mm. Um, And we choose a film every year and we dub it into the local language, uh, which in itself is a great project, uh, doing that up there. Uh, 
with a team that uh, there's this team of Pixel Asia and there's locals, you know, all doing the voices and acting and they really get oh, into it. I so that's a fun project. But, uh, you know, we choose really nice family-friendly films. So everything from Red Dog to Oddball, Paper Planes, Finding Nemo, you know, good family films. Yep. And uh, so that that was going really well. But people started saying, oh, gee, I wish you could do it here or why don't you do it here? And we were like, hey, we've only got limited resources. We're mm. really proud of what we do here. But a couple of years ago, uh, we were getting a real push to do it in both the Northern Ter- Territory and in... Uh, Papua New Guinea. And so we decided, okay, well, in team what we called it Cinema Lorisai, which is Tetan for Rising Sun Cinema. And we decided that uh, if we were going to take it further, that we'd actually need to kind of build a framework around it. So we started Screens Without Borders. Uh, there's a few people from the film industry who are on the board um, and uh, a friend who's a health mental health professional came on board as well. So uh, we started did a pilot program in the Northern Territory this year. Uh, and because I also, you know, my background is designing cinema equipment I, I, and I hate blow-up screens because they're just cumbersome and they make you feel like carny folk because the first thing you've got to do is turn <laughs> up with a sledgehammer and put in pegs and really tiring. And, you know, at 11 o'clock at night when you're packing up a big inflatable screen, you just think, oh, I wish this was over. So I've designed this folding cinema screen system that actually comes up out of a truck um, if people want to so know that what that looks like. that back of a ute like, or something like that? Yeah, or, yeah, and yeah. it literally unfolds out of the ute. So it's um, popoutcinema.com. Go and have a look. It's kind of kooky yeah. how it works. And so the screen comes out, the projector's built in, the sound's built in, and literally we've timed it for eight minutes after parking the car. You can show a film. Fantastic. It's just amazing. Yeah, so we took, So this, uh, around March, April, we took it out into the outback and we did some test screenings just so that we could get people on board because we to make that work, we're going to need some help with funding. So we're wanting the various councils and, and bodies out there to kind of get behind it. Mm. So we've done that. But really exciting when we went to Papua New Guinea. I just got back two weeks ago. Yeah. So we finally sent all of the equipment up and... You know, because we're not afraid, it's shy of jumping into the deep end. Uh, rather than start in Port Moresby, we started on Manus Island. And that was amazing oh. to go to Manus Island. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, with one of these sets of equipment, we've trained the locals how to use it. We've left the equipment with them. Uh, you know, we have a local sponsor. There's a, a company there called Paladin who um, does work there, who's sponsored us to go and set this up. And I have to say it's the most amazing community program. There's a lot of community programs going on there, you know, despite mm. what we hear on the news. And I'm not, there's some bad stuff going on there, right? Also, yep. um, uncomfortable things, let's say, unfortunate things. But there are people there trying to do really good work around the community engagement you know, between the refugees and the locals. And so, you know, it was really nice to be part of trying to, that bridge that's trying to be built to help. Yep. And again, it's just that power of bringing people together. So we went out into the villages. Uh, we also went into the refugee camp to, to show, and it's not really a camp anymore. It's actually an open door policy facility now. So they're able to come and go and go down to town. Some of them have started businesses. Some of them have taken partners and have children in town now. Yeah. Um, and I know that, um, they're, you know that they're allowed to get citizenship if they want. So I, I'm, obviously we're not here to comment on that. But um, it was really eye-opening to be there right in the heart of seeing how that's playing out at the moment. Mm. And I know it's only a movie and I know it's just a simple thing, but you know sometimes it is those little things that just help people get through the day and... You know, movies can be a great window to the world of, you know, hope and aspiration. And, you know, and I and I must say, um, the, the film we showed for the opening night at the, uh, for the refugees uh, was a film I love called The Extraordinary Journey of the Fakir. 
but it was quite a touchy film because it's actually about a guy who goes through what they go through and some of the security guards weren't very happy that oh, that I was the imagine. film I chose and they were kind of standing over me with this like you think this well, yeah, excuse me what do you think you're doing it's like just let it go let it, and it had, it's got the most fantastic uplifting ending and if, and they you know so they they're worried about the reaction but the mm. guys loved it I mean you know when someone shakes your hand so long and they're not letting go and they just yeah because people, people just need to go and do some nice things for these people I mean Anyway, that, and look, and it was interesting to see, uh, you know, that they're down in town teaching people how to make curries, you know, the guys from Burma. And, um, you know, a lot of them are really trying to integrate and just get on with some semblance of a life, life. Until, you know, until um, whatever their next step is. So the good news is that that equipment's there now. Um, and so we're screening weekly at the, um, at the refugee accommodation. We're moving around the villages. Uh, we've selected about a dozen villages that we'll go to once a month. Uh, the first film we were showing was Power Mary. Uh, is a fantastic documentary made by people in Sydney about the Papua New Guinean women's rugby team ah. going to the World Cup for the first time. And it's a great film because it's not just an uplifting story about, you know, these, these really strong women, uh, mentally and physically strong. But, uh, you know, they were just laughed at by the men in the country. You know, it's a very parochial society. It is. Um, although, you know, they tell me it's a parochial society, but having gone around, you can tell it's the women who actually are running the place. Well, I mean, I could make a big comment about that around the world, couldn't yeah, I? Yeah, and, I, you know, <coughs> and you see it time and time again, don't you? Uh, so anyway, that's gone really well, and now we're sort of working out what the next films will be. But uh, uh, we'll hopefully go to Port Moresby soon. And my hope is that if we can expand into one new area per year, you know, that's a slow expansion, but, you know, in 10 years that means we'll be in 10 more places. So, um, you know, I've got this new plane being built for me, which is, a, you know, like this incredible adventure plane. And part of my design brief was I needed to be able to fit the equipment in. So uh, it's kind of like it got a hatchback door on the back where we can put all of this equipment in and deliver it to, I don't know, imagine the Cook Islands or, mm. um, you know, some of the... Uh, so many places in the Pacific that it'd be great to, to take movies back to and, you know, just get communities together and enjoying themselves. So this is your way of giving back? Yeah, I, th I think that's a big part of it, yeah. If people do want to find more out about your journey, where do they go? Please go to southernsun.voyage and uh, you'll see photos, the story. The, you can get the book and the film there as well. And uh, I do enjoy doing going. I do a lot of um, public talks. Um, if you're a corporate, we'll charge you a fortune, um, but you've got the money. <laughs> if you're not a corporate, then we're just ridiculously cheap. We just cover our costs. And in fact, we all we ask for is a donation to Screens Without Borders. Um, so, you know, I we, we do both, um, but just reach out. And, and if I can, I love to jump in the plane and fly to these places. It makes it a really fun weekend away. Mm, yeah. Sounds perfect. Yeah. So, but yeah, Southern Sun dot Voyage. Who knew that dot Voyage you could have instead of dot com? But Every traveller should have one. <laughs> well, thank you, Michael. It's been a it's pleasure. Been a, it's really been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Talking Australia. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and hear you next time. Listener.